Hi, I'm Adam Summerton. You're listening to the NL Full-Time Podcast. Welcome to this week's NL Full-Time. I'm Luke Edwards. Hope you're looking after yourselves. And it's been a pretty quiet week, hasn't it, this week? Mm. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, joining me to look over everything we have, Rob Worrell. Hiya, Rob. Hi, Luke. And also with us is Tom Lang. Hiya, Tom. Hi, Luke. And also with us is Dickie Wharton. Hiya, Dickie. Hi, Luke. Good to be in your company as always. Chris is uh, Chris is taking a, giving us a swerve this week. And also joining us, we have special guest, uh, Scotty Davis with us. Hiya, Scotty. Hi, chaps. Hope you're all doing well. Yeah, we are. Cheers. Back at Slough now, aren't you? Well, sort of. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's one of those ones. I get on well with the managers. Um and they gave me the opportunity to sort of get back involved um, just to sort of bog the numbers in the squad a little bit because they don't have massive squads. Um, and it's, it was an opportunity I couldn't turn down. I didn't want to be sat at home um, and obviously sat on my sofa and watching games at three o'clock on Saturday, um, whether it be on the laptop or on my phone. So when they said, do you want to go back um, and basically sort of bide your time, I was like, yeah, let's, let's jump at the opportunity. So no, it's been good. And so this week, of course, we had the news about uh, the National League. So the North and South Divisions have put a temporary stop on the season for two weeks, but the National League Top Division are going to carry on. Uh, what do you make of all of it, Scott? I know, obviously, yourself and Tom will have views on it and Dickie because you're heavily involved at clubs at North and South level. Yeah, I think the opinions are great. And I think that's where the world of football, we all love people's opinions. I said but at times, um, I think people go too far with them. I think that the National League itself, the Premier, they, in my eyes, are deemed as elite. Um, they have more full-time clubs than they have part-time clubs. Um, when you're looking at the North and South, there's only a handful of clubs that are sort of, they call it twilight, where you might train a couple of mornings a week. Um, and then you've got Epstein that are full-time and, and having more Louisville clubs like that. I never, ever looked at myself once in the whole time that I was playing in the Conference South and deemed myself to be an elite footballer. If I'd gone back into the International League Premier um, and started playing, yeah, maybe I'd look at it differently because those players don't go to work at nine o'clock on a Monday morning and go and, uh, I don't know, put a new bathroom in someone's house, okay, which is probably what the majority of our lads do at Slough. Um, similar to me, I go and do my public speaking around the country. These lads are focusing fully on football. Um, so they have football as their first time uh, or as their, as their main income. Um, but most of our lads, and this is where I think that it's different between the two leagues, is that we've got... 75% of our squad that are tradesmen, they're going on to building sites. They're not getting tested. They're coming into the changing room. I don't know where my teammates have been all week. I don't know how many people they've seen. I don't know how many people they're traveling with in transit to these places. Um, I can look after myself, but how can I then sort of protect myself if my teammates are having to go to work? Because you can't fault them for doing that. They're trying to look after their families and, and whatnot. Um, but if you actually look at me, who sits at home at the moment on Zoom, um, I can control the controllables, which is me and my girlfriend sitting in our flat. Okay, that's what we do. Um, all of a sudden, when I go to football, I'm seeing 20 other lads who see four people each at their house. That's down 80 people. Okay, those 80 people might go to work and see another four or five. All of a sudden, you're talking 300 people. So this was my, <clears throat> this was how I sort of figured it out in my mind and thought, well, how can that carry on without no testing? It's just absolutely crazy. It's a great point, Scotty. That really is. Uh, there's a lot of mixed views out there, of course, as well. And some some clubs haven't necessarily had their view um, 
or, or that's not been the way that the decision's gone and they've had to be respectful of the majority. Um, our friends at the non-league paper have uh, taken the trouble to get quotes from quite a lot of the, the clubs involved. A couple of those I'll quote from now. The Tunbridge Angels uh, chairman, Dave Netherstreet, he says, with no real certainty as to when restrictions will be eased or lifted completely, to commit to unknown levels of debt, whether direct or indirect, seems to us a dangerous and foolhardy path down which to proceed. We want our supporters to be able to return to a thriving community club once this terrible pandemic is over. And I think he's encapsulated it really, really well there. Um, you know, so we've seen so many clubs go to the wall through financial mismanagement. Um, this is like, waiting, you know, just making an accident happen, isn't it? Yeah, for me... I grew up in um, Ellsbury. Ellsbury United had a fantastic Conference South, uh, Conference Premier side um, a number of years ago. And because of bad management of finance, um, they had to pretty much start all over again. They've not played in um, in the hometown for nearly 15 years or something. We lost the club because of mismanagement and, and poor financial structure. And for me, that was a club that I saw myself going to at the end of my career. I thought to myself, do you know what? It's got a, a great fan base um, in a big town. And I look at more clubs that would be in a similar path or on a similar route to them. Um, the way I look at it is people say, oh, well, now that the money's not there, clubs are refusing to play. Football at non-league level should not be your first priority in terms of your income. If you're, if it is your first priority and it's your main income, say you're 23 years old, 24 years old, and you're earning more from football than you are from work, you're either earning too much money in the league from the club that you're getting paid from, or on the other hand, you're, you're lazy and you're not going to work Monday to Friday because that is your main income. <clears throat> I don't think that any player should be able to sit on their ass, if I'm brutally honest, um, and live off football money in the conference south. The thing that I do realise and probably ruins it for everyone is that you've got players on a £1,000 a week in the conference south. That is not anyone else's fault other than the manager and the chairman who have given these players these deals. Okay, I look at it and think, well, now you've been put on a furlough scheme, they're getting the benefit of the furlough scheme. And it ruins it for everyone else that because these clubs are throwing so much money at it, we're having to get £11 million as a, as a grant to be able for, for us to carry on. Um, when if it was done within reason um, and in a sensible manner of giving out wages and contracts, we wouldn't be in this situation at the start. So, um, yeah, I, I've got really quite strong feelings on that. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying I'm wrong. And people can disagree and they can challenge me. But I've thought about it long and hard. And for me, I've got a real... Um, feeling that the money is obviously important for these clubs for the longevity of their futures. If that's not doable, the season needs to be put on hold because or suspended. Um, I would hate to see any non-league club goes to the wall because of how much it means to a lot of fans um, of non-league clubs that I played for. Um, you look at Berry in the in the Football League, like to lose a club of their stature, it shouldn't be happening. Um, and I think there'd be more clubs that are in jeopardy and in danger of doing that if uh, if these loans were taken out. I think... I think what Scott said is absolutely right. And um, we had a podcast at Hampton and Richmond yesterday and, and the words that uh, our chairman used were, were very apt. Option one was a loan. That just isn't palatable to businesses which are trading in insolvency at the moment. You can't take on loans when you have no income. You take on a loan because you're looking to do business development. You're looking to increase the potential of the business. You're looking to change something, not because you're trying to stay afloat. So that's just not practical. However, option two, which there was a lot of support for um, from fans I saw on Twitter, Option two was just loans wearing grants clothing. Um, they were, it was still going to have to be paid back and it was going to be paid back at the expense of the future of clubs. Um, those central payments from you know New Balance, from Joma, from 
uh, BT, they were what was going to be used to, to cover the costs essentially long term. And, and that would have an impact on the sustainability of clubs. I think from, from my perspective, personally, there are two issues at play and, and it's difficult to conflate them, but it's also difficult to completely separate them. One is we can't play football. We can't have football at a level where it's financially unsustainable for the clubs. We have to protect the future of the clubs. The other, which is separate, but also linked is we can't play football when we're putting players and and not just players, but don't forget who actually makes the clubs tick on match day. Players, I know, you know, Scott as a player, you are absolutely at risk. You're going to be on the pitch with 20, 21 other men. You're going to be in the changing room with them. Absolutely at risk. But also you've got to look at the the volunteers, you know, those six people in their 60s and 70s who are turning up to actually make the match happen, to keep it safe, to do the COVID officer roles, to to, to clean the facilities. They are the people that are at risk. You know, non-league football as a as a demographic in the in the supporter base and also the base of people that volunteer at clubs is older. You know, there aren't a huge amount of people in their 20s, 30s and 40s volunteering at non-league football. They just aren't. Oh. Um, and those are the people that are at risk as well. And we need to consider them too. I think personally, I'm 100% behind a break. My only worry is, is two weeks actually just the worst of both worlds from a financial perspective? Because it's difficult for clubs to furlough players. They're still picking up the salaries, but they're not getting to play matches. I think for me, is the crazy thing is that obviously you have a two-week break and the funding does come back. That still doesn't get rid of this virus. And I know that I haven't seen my mum and dad for the longest period of time in my whole life right now because... I know that when I could control what I was doing, where I was going, um, I would pop and see my mum in the garden. I'd stand outside and say hello because I'm close with my parents. Now I have not put my mum at risk because she is in a, in a high category risk. Um, and for me, the only reason why I've done that is because of football. Um, I know that I can't be in control of what I'm doing. Um, I know at the same time that a lot of people um, say about this two-week break and there's been a lot of excuses. I know people have called out Slough on Twitter um, for the way they've dealt with it. The way you look at it as well, and he's obviously gone public about it, one of the managers has stepped back to protect his dad during this time. So you cannot then say, oh, it's a financial reason why he stepped back. He stepped back for the good of his family and for the health of his family. Um, So I've seen a lot of things where I don't like players. They've commented on tweets. They've liked tweets and they don't look at the bigger picture. I think it's narrow-minded. It's one-directional in terms of how they're thinking. There's a lot more to it. I know that um, I've lost probably, I'm quite open and honest, I've probably lost three and a half, four thousand pounds in the time that um, I've not been playing football. I could not care less about the money that I've lost. All I want to make sure is that when this virus is over, I've got my friends, I've got my family by my side and we can go out and celebrate um, and make sure that we're all happy and healthy. Um, to go and get three points away at Eastbourne on a Saturday, yeah, it's great. It's great to have a kick about. That would have been good. But at the end of the day, why are we doing it for the risk element? I don't get it. And how can you say that... Um, I remember the Premier League players coming out at the beginning saying, oh, we're basically being made to play football because we're being seen as entertainers now. But the happy thing for them was is they were getting tested once a week, twice a week. We're quite lucky and um, fortunate that the club are quite responsible. They've basically said to us, any time that anyone's got a cold or sniffle, um, go and get a test. So we've had to, had to go and get a test. Um, if anyone's had any symptoms, we've not trained. So hence why we trained twice in the last six weeks, uh, whereas other clubs probably training two or three times a week. Um, so for me, people, if they could see what's going on in the club, um, they would have a better perspective and a better view and more open and honest opinion of, of how we've actually treated it over the last few weeks. So, yeah, it's quite frustrating, I guess. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned there, which I think were really worth pulling out, um, about some of the commentary, on, particularly on Twitter, about how, oh, you know, well, 
back when Slough were competing for the playoffs, they wanted to continue the season back when we locked down initially. But now, all of a sudden, when they're down the wrong, they they don't. I think I understand why people make that argument. People want to look at it from a part of nature, but you have to consider the changing picture as well. I think if we all sit here and, and honestly look inside, we understand much more about the virus now than we did a year ago. We all realise that the picture is very different. You know, from a personal perspective, back when we first shut down the season, I think it was in March, April last year, I didn't know a single person who had coronavirus. I'd never met anyone who did. Um, however, this time, January, we're at, the, we're at the highest it's ever been. I've, I personally know probably a dozen people who've had it, including people, young people who've been hospitalised with it. You know, it's it touched people that we know very close on this podcast. I think it's really important to realise that, yeah, some people's positions on whether we should play football have changed. Because if your yeah. position doesn't change as you're exposed to more evidence, then frankly, you're kind of a moron. Yeah, can, if, just in response to that quickly, I, I was speaking to a, um, a volunteer at Slough. There's a, um, a lady called Lucy. She's a lovely lady and she works at the local hospital. And um, I was talking to her again the other day and she said to me, um, the average age of the people on a ventilator now is 61. That's two or three years um, difference in age to my parents. So obviously that age has come down now because the older age of getting the vaccine. And I would say that the majority of the parents in our squad are between sort of mid fifties and mid sixties. Okay. So we think we're immune. We think we're invincible to this virus. How can it be possible? How can it be seen or as, be deemed as, as sensible to carry on when there's no testing? I just don't get it. It, it beggars belief. Um, and like you say, it's affecting more younger people than, than, um, than it was previously. I think that I did some, some research um, yesterday when I was having a bit of a Twitter rant with someone. There were 17 deaths on, in July, two days after the playoffs um, when we played. And it wasn't sort of, it was out there, but it wasn't out there as such. Um, the other day, there was 1,401 deaths. This is a completely different landscape. The landscape's forever changing. Um, the R rate's actually higher than it was in July. Um, and we could control more back then than we can now. And I think that's just a frustrating thing where people look at it in sort of uh, a narrow-minded opinion, narrow-minded view, and it just doesn't bode well, doesn't sit well with me. But my, my, my view is just my view and my opinion, that's all. I think it's really handy to have somebody to come on to be so forthright right now. I can imagine... A number of people, if we did invite them on, they might hedge their bets a little. It's good to have a strong opinion, Scotty, and we back you for that. Um, another quote, again, from our friends at the non-league paper, this time from Hungerford Town, National League South, which kind of leads us to another point worth discussing. The decision to suspend season at step two has nothing to do with safety or the COVID pandemic. And evidence of this is that the National League now continues. This is purely down to the fact that no funding is currently available by way of a grant to finance clubs in the absence of fans. Despite assurances back in October, Hungerford Town would not have commenced the season on any other basis and triggered player contracts. This is an absolute disgrace and we have been misled in no uncertain terms. Now, to give the DCMS, their right of reply to this. Here's a direct quote from them in response to it. It is untrue to suggest funding to the National League was ever promised as all grants, and they've been unable to substantiate this claim. In October, we brokered a unique deal with the National Lottery to provide a 10 million cash injection to keep step one and keep two, and two clubs afloat. We recently announced another 11 million in low interest loans to support them in line with the support offered to other sports. 
If any individual Step 1 and Step 2 National League club can demonstrate it is in critical need of support and would be unable to repay a loan, then grant applications will be assessed on a case-by-case basis. And this will, of course, be through the same rigorous process that we apply to all other sports. Anybody want to come in on that one? Yeah, taking into account what Hungerford is saying there, Scott, that it's, this is a financial imperative, not a safety-related decision. Let's look at it from that angle then. Would, would you as a player feel comfortable restart, resuming the season in two weeks? Let's say that the landscape from a COVID perspective doesn't change. We're still on the same numbers as we are now, but the, but the money's turned to grants. How would you feel about that? Yeah, for me, are we just waiting for someone to, to pass away? Are we waiting for someone who plays in the Conference South, the Conference North, the Conference Prem to lose a parent, okay, to lose a relative and then go, do you know what? Maybe we shouldn't have done that. It, it, this is a matter of life and death. Like, I don't want to go around and infect my parents. I want to protect them as much as I can. Hungerford, for me, are a really interesting club at the moment. I think that in the Conference South, um, they've had a great season. They've done really well. They play a good brand of football. They've got a new manager, some good new young players. But they're sat fourth in the league. All right. They're not used to being that high up in the league. And they're probably thinking, do you know what? We don't want the season to end. And good luck to them. A lot of people say that Slough want the season to be over because um, we're second from bottom. However, that doesn't worry me because I know with the squad that we've got, we can easily climb that table. Um, there's not going to be any relegation, so that's not a problem. So we could just be playing football now to fulfil the fixtures and to get it over and done with. Um, and it just seems by no means necessary that we're, we're sort of putting our lives at risk because of that. And I think that it might seem quite far-fetched when I use a, a phrase like that, putting our lives at risk, but... How many people have died that never thought they would die from this? And that's the thing that's crazy. Um, I know when you say about the the money, if it was turned um, back to a grant rather than a loan, there would still be um, an uncomfortable feeling amongst the squad because I know what I've spoken to a lot of the players in the Slough squad. They're scared of having to isolate for two weeks because they're self-employed. Um, if they do have to isolate from a positive COVID case, their families would then struggle off the back of this because of because obviously the lack of work and the lack of finance they've got coming into their house. Um, you've got a lot of young families there with young children, and they said, "If I have to isolate for two weeks, I'll, I'll be in a I'll be up right shit streak." So there's so many different elements. Um, if I did contract COVID or if I was had to isolate for two weeks, I'm fine because I can work from home. But you've got a lot of lads that are self-employed, running their own companies, running their own businesses, who just can't run that risk. Um, and football, as you've seen. I think Slough didn't play for four or five weeks because there were so many games called off because of COVID. Um, and it just seems so we're fighting an uphill battle um, just to try and get these games completed when I think there needs to be more logic put to it. Um, testing is so important. Um, Dean Brennan actually made a great point yesterday. I don't know if anyone listened to his um, interview after the game. But he said about the PFA, um, he said about there was 14 players in the Wheelstone squad that are members of the PFA. I would love the PFA to come in and help out and say, listen, there is funding for the testing for the players that are represented by us in the in the uh, national leagues. Um, I think there was nine players at Slough that would be um, able to get that. And it would just be a nice thing to be able to do. Um, I would happily go and have a test every Tuesday evening if I had to um, and basically be sensible for the rest of the week. One more point that I would say is, the Premier League players, um, there's obviously been positive cases within the Premier League where players have had to isolate Aguero, for example, at the moment. He goes from home to the training ground, probably goes back home. OK, that's as simple as that. 
we go, we are like social butterflies within our team. So we go home, we go see our wife, then we go to work, then we go to training and we go back home. There's just so many people that we're seeing and that's against the law in a way that you can only go meet one person outside from another household. We're meeting 25 people inside in the changing room. Like, come on, like, it just, it just beggars mm-hmm. belief. Like I said, I just can't see how it can go on. Um, unless the testing was provided. In terms of the safety, and that, that hugely important points you think I make that you make there, Scott. Um, there's also part of me thinks that we're going to need to have testing if we actually want to get the season finished. You know, when you look at the, the fixture backlog that some teams have, I know um, in the National League North, you've got Hereford, um, who are still in the FA Trophy, and I think they've only played 12 games. So they've got 30 matches still to complete. They've got trophy games to play. If we're talking about the, the league season ending at the end of May, as was originally projected, they're playing twice a week between now and the end of the season when if things resume again in the middle of February. And if you think about potential COVID breaks as well, you know, if they have further outbreaks, if the squad needs to self-isolate again, how on earth is that going to be completed? And, you know, safe uh, testing would go some way towards helping that get finished. But but it's more about that. It's, 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 it comes back to the point you say about that, the, you know, players mixing in dressing rooms and then, you know, that, that whole, you know, almost that example of, you know, two becomes four, becomes eight, becomes yeah. however many. Just the contact you have with people does make it unsafe. Yeah, if you look at it like a family tree where you have the parents at the top and you have the kids and then you see the kids see it, it just it just spirals completely out of control, the amount of numbers that people are actually seeing. Um, and like you say, 30 games um, with two games a week. If you then have potentially three games a week at some point, the problem you'll have then is players going, I'm not doing that. All right, so players might be on, might be on not huge amounts of money. They're saying, I can't do that. I've got to, I've got to work basically to make up extra income. Um, and it just becomes a complete kerfuffle. I don't believe that the season should ever have started in non-league. I think that from having talks with the manager at Biggles Wade, uh, Chris Nunn, we've always said that we can't believe that we're kind of playing. Um, we weren't, weren't allowed to shower after matches. So sometimes we're playing in Birmingham and we're turning up at the ground. We're going straight out to the pitch I'm getting back in my car and I'm driving home and I'm showering when I get home sort of four or five hours later. And I felt like a Sunday league player because we are there to sort of put on a show for people. Not, it might not be the nicest of shows at the time having to watch players like me. But um, yeah, it, I just can't believe how football has been deemed to be OK. I know that a lot of people say it's great for their mental health to be able to go and watch football. Premier League players can play for us. League One, League Two players can play for us. Championship players can play for us in a safe environment. We can't do it in a safe environment without help. And I don't feel like the help is there right now um, for us to be able to continue. I miss football hugely when it's not on. Um, I'm probably the most obsessed person with football. Um, but the enjoyment of it at the moment is it's not right without fans. Um, I think fans are the most important people in a game and I know it's so cliche um, but even when people make mistakes in a game at the moment it, there's no sort of worry about making another mistake because there's no one there no one's getting on your back there's no one to celebrate with it's just not the normal game that we all love um, and I think to myself suspending the season is probably the right thing to do even though it breaks my heart it's well, interesting. On, a, on a different different sort of note so you know we're talking about sort of the macro conversations about whether football can should continue looking at it purely as a player you know, I I don't want to shock listeners, but you are over thirty now. Um, I think it's uh, no secret. <laughs> you, yeah. Towards the end of your career, if you were, if you you know, as a player in your thirties, how are you feeling knowing that you know you're potentially losing a whole year plus, potentially two whole seasons of your career when you want to probably eke out every minute of football you can at this point? 
Yeah, I'm a weird one. Um, we actually had a discussion the other day with the Bigglesweight manager and he said, listen, he said, I know the funding's not there. He said, but if we had to go back at Bigglesweight and we had to cut the budget or if you had to play for free, I would do it because I love playing football. Uh, and I play football because I've been through tough times in the past and it gives me that release. Um, it's my sort of go-to, my baby. I realise now that I might be missing the season of my, of my career. But like I said, I'm not just saying it because it's cliche and it's the right thing to say, the right thing to do. I just want to make sure that everyone's okay after this. And um, I've struggled this this lockdown, if I'm brutally honest. I've not struggled with um, the effects of COVID, but I lost a family member, um, a relative, to suicide during this time. And you talk about the suicide that, uh, um, rates going up and things like that. I've seen the effects that it can have on people. Um, I know that football's important to a lot, but I realise how important life is. And I think to myself that you can see how drastic, how much people are struggling um, and we all need to stick together I think we need to make it a happy place we need to check on other people uh, make sure everyone's okay but um, like you say football's not that important when you sort of go through things that we've been through in the last month uh, month or two as a family yeah it really interested me the point that you made there when you and 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 I think it is a point or, or something that's been uh, put out there a lot saying that football um, has been seen as providing people with a release and that you know people have still got that um, ability to watch a a game on a weekend and, and the benefits to people's mental health of having that. But I wondered if you felt that perhaps the, the, the mental health of the, the participants hasn't necessarily been taken into account so much in that, you know, you spoke about this thing about almost been seeing as performers. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely get your point. I think that um, it is something that is real. Um, like I said, that when I've been through what I've been through in the last few months with my family and seen how it's affected my family, um, I just think there's more to life than football. And that's been a, a it's been something that I've really thought about long and hard. Um, I think obviously with uh, Bakes, the manager as well, having to sort of shield from football and not be able to attend, he shouldn't have to do that. Do you know what I mean? It should be like protocols in place that he can attend the matches safely, uh, be there with the rest of the boys and be able to go home and see his family and his dad. So um, for me, that's really important because I know how much he loves his football um, and it's sad to not see him there um, and sad to see what he's going through. But without the right protocols, he just can't risk it. Um, with the mental health side for the boys, I have a lot of messages, um, not from teammates and stuff like that, but just in general from people in society, from the work that I do, um, having struggled with a gambling addiction, I've, I've been through sort of not a, not a ridiculously tough battle with mental health. I won't claim to say that I've had it worse than other people, um, but it's been there. There's been times where I've been really low. Um, I've done some stupid things off the back of it. Um, but for me, yeah, a lot of people or a lot of footballers say that it's been great to get out and kick a ball around. Yeah, it has been, uh, but there's been this constant worry, this anxiety around sort of um, just waiting for the worst to happen. And I'm not just saying that. I know that it sounds easy to say it, um, but I've seen fans on Twitter say that football needs to carry on for my mental health. You're not the ones that are putting yourself at risk. So it's quite easy for you to say that. Um, I know that Rob is obviously the world's biggest Aldershot fan. And if Aldershot couldn't play tomorrow um, from tomorrow, uh, because the players felt unsafe, he would accept that because he's the kind of guy that would be like, listen, your sort of uh, well-being and, and health and safety comes first. But you've got a lot of fans that speak from a self, self-centered self point of view. I think it's like you say, we're, we've been deemed to be performers um, without any um, protocols put in place um, that, that, that should be necessary. As a, as a photographer at a club, that is the biggest risk to me every week. It's not going to work. It's not... It's going to football. 
Um, you know, I've got a pregnant wife at home and every Sunday I sit there feeling guilty. Like, what if I've just brought COVID home? Yeah. And for you guys, again, like who are in the changing room, that much more, for me, at least when I go to football, I drive there, I sit beside the pitch, I get in the car and I leave again. Like the physical contact isn't that high. You're banging into people, there's sweat, there's spit flying everywhere. I think, I think you'd have to be really quite uh, sort of callous and, and self-centred to not appreciate the risks that footballers are putting up with on the behalf of, of supporters who are watching the games. I think as well, um, I walked into the club the other day and I'm not sure of the gent's name, but I walked in and as soon as I walked in, it was like he'd seen a ghost. He's quite an elderly gentleman and he had his mask on, he had his cap on and I sort of walked towards him um, and he was facing the other way. And as soon as he saw me, he sort of stepped into a doorway. So he stepped out of my way to sort of avoid me um, because he's probably mid seventies. And for me, it was almost just like, this is real for him. Do you know what I mean? He's obviously scared about what he's put himself into and, but he doesn't want to miss his football. Um, the chairman at Biggleswade, a guy called Morris Dorrington, fantastic bloke, really good bloke. Um, he didn't want to travel to one of the games at one point because he just said, listen, I'm 74, 75 years old. Um, I'm putting myself at risk. And we didn't see him for a number of weeks when we played matches. When we played at home, he used to sort of just sort of sit in the chairman's office, um, go out and watch the game, go back into his office when usually he's in and around the changing room. He's wishing us good luck. It just wasn't normal. And it, it just felt false. It felt, felt forced. Um, and football at the moment is, is great to train. It's great to play. But the rest of it is, is just, a, it's just a pile of rubbish, if I'm brutally honest. We've quoted this morning from National League North and South uh, clubs, and here's one from uh, a National League club, Dagenham and Redbridge. And obviously the National League at the moment has, con- has, has opted to continue. Uh, the club is extremely concerned that despite indications that if supporters were no longer allowed into stadiums by January, initial grant funding would be continued for a further three months. OK, that's a moot point now. We've covered that really. But... Many clubs have indicated that this is not an option and the prospect of our season being cancelled is now a real threat. Dagenham and Redbridge are amazed that the resultant furlough claims on the Treasury made as a result of such a cancellation is calculated to be in excess of the grant funding originally indicated uh, and it's, only, it's urging its own MP uh, to reconsider the option. Tom, I think you've got a few more details on this, haven't you? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a slightly disingenuous comparison, essentially. The the grant scheme that they're talking about, £11 million, covers the next three months of the of the season continuing. However, you're still then making an assumption that for the remaining two months, we'll be able to get fans in. Now, there is no guarantee. We've been burned by that once already, expecting that we'd have fans back by now, when that's clearly just not palatable to the government, and rightly so the chances of restrictions being lifted by April are very low. The chances, those restrictions, when they do get lifted, they're going to be on retail, they're going to be on profit-generating sectors of the economy, not on getting people into non-league football grounds. So the reality is, in three months, we probably need grants again. That furlough scheme that they've worked out, that 14, 15 million pound cost, takes us to the end of the season. So you're comparing the cost of the government to continue football for three months versus the cost of the government to shut down football for five months. So actually, when you look at it as a, an equivalent comparator across the same time period, that furlough cost remains the same, but the grants that would be required become a lot higher. That's a really, really good point, Tom. Scotty, I'd like to ask you, um, quoting directly from Dorking manager Mark White's uh, um, discussion with BBC Surrey Sports yesterday. Uh, he is really concerned about the split that has now occurred, the fact that the National League clubs 
chose to continue and the North and South clubs didn't. I don't think this is a, a kind of everybody got together and came up with this strategy. They just voted accordingly with their consensus. Does that split concern you as well, Scotty? Um, because national, even the National League as a whole now is not presenting a united front, is it? Yeah, I, I actually thought it might happen. Um, I deem National League Prem to be professional football now. I think the stature of the clubs in the in the league, um, the players they've got, the wages they're earning, they are professional footballers, even though it's still non-league. Um, the Conference South, Conference North is not. Whichever way you butter it up, okay, whichever way you like it, I'm one of those statistics, one of those players. I'm not a professional footballer. I lost my status a few years ago and I happily accepted it. Um, I happily accepted that I have to go and get a job, like I said earlier. Um, football is just something that I do on the side now, um, which I really enjoy. Um, I know that the National League Premier will be a season that probably does come to, um, it will get a result, it will get a finish because of the importance of the, obviously, link between them and the EFL. Um, the EFL will need a result. Um Obviously, with what happened with Berry, I believe that they're already a club short. Um, if they didn't get a result this year, they could be another club short. There might be not relegation. And they want to keep their sort of dignity there um, intact as a, as a league to make sure they're doing what's right for them. Um, and I think they'll find a way to finish it. I do actually quite like the way that um, the Dorky manager comes across. I listened to his interview yesterday. Um, and I think that he speaks openly, honestly. I think he speaks fairly um, and speaks well. Um, but... I knew that divide was coming. I knew it was coming. I thought to myself, do you know what? The South and the North um, is different from the Prem, um, even though I don't think it should be because um, obviously the Vanarama and the National League should be treating it as one. Um, but um, you've sort of got to realise that we're sort of like little brother, little sister um, compared, to the, compared to the Prem and it is what it is. Yeah, lastly then, before we move on from this, I know Dickie, you mentioned you speak to people close at Telford and they're kind of in agreement that the National League, they've kind of gone with the votes of what the clubs have wanted, haven't they? Yeah, that's my understanding of it, is that um, the majority of the clubs in the National League itself wanted to continue. Um, but at North and South level, it was a different picture and, and, and they voted or they'd asked for this suspension. So in effect, the National League board have, have given them what they've asked for. Um I do think that creates some of its own problems. Again, we've spoken about that that fixture congestion. You've, you're taking two weeks out of the season. You might have further teams needing to take you know time off because of COVID issues. Um, is it going to finish on the 29th of May when it's scheduled? Do you have to extend the season? You know, is that really realistic at this level? Um, I think, from my own point of view, it feels like we're moving very slowly towards a point where the season will, will just get made null and void, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, questionable whether it even should have began. You know, I've, I've had those thoughts myself over the last, you know, half a week or so since this all sort of hit the headlines. And the, the longer you look at it, the, the, the more you think to yourself, I don't know why we ever started, to be honest. Can I make a point off the back of that? I think it's so important. I've just thought of something that, that I thought of yesterday is if you actually said to 100% of the Conference North and the Conference South players, um, if you had to take a two-week break from football and um, two-week break from football or two-week break from your job, I guarantee now they'll take a break from football because football is not what earns them the money. Whereas if you took a two-week break in the um, in the league in the Prem that is their job do you know what I mean it doesn't surprise me that they voted to carry on because that's what they get up for Monday to Friday most lads get up Monday to Friday to go and fit a bathroom okay and if they weren't doing that they would find that more trouble uh, from not earning the money they'd get from that than they would from not getting their football money 
So that just shows the difference in the two leagues. It's, it's complete worlds apart, even though there's only a gap of one league. Um, so, yeah, that speaks volumes for me. I know that if I had to lose two weeks' football money or two weeks' money from work, I'd, I'd throw my football money away straight away. So that's the difference in the two leagues. I'm really glad that Rob read that quote from Mark White, actually, because I completely disagree with him. I completely disagree with Mark White. I think it's really, really positive that they have taken this best case for each league approach to it. They totally should be splitting it down. As Scott says, they are different entities. One of the biggest criticisms, not just of the National League, but of all the governing bodies, is that they've looked for one-size-fits-all solutions. They just don't work. We've proven that. This is a really specific individual response for each club, essentially, not let alone each league. What is right for Hungerford Town is never going to be right for Norris County. It just doesn't work. So I'm really pleased that they've actually looked at it on a case-by-case basis for leagues. I would agree with that. And that sort of dovetails with, um, you know, something that I've been thinking as well, Tom, in that, you know, it's, it's probably one for a discussion in a, in a further podcast along the line, because, you know, we've, we've, we're probably getting to the point of, of doing this one to death a little bit. But uh, is this potentially a signal for almost like a, a split in the National League and the, and, and the way that it is governed. You know, we've there have been issues and there have been challenges around the governance within the National League. And I know that um, David Bernstein, I think, wrote not specifically about the National League, but I thought it was interesting that obviously he was involved in the, um, you know, looking at the funds distribution and then apparently wrote a letter to Oliver Dowden from DCMS saying that, um, you know, football need to be looked at in this country and the governance of it. You know, are we seeing potentially a split further down the line between, you know, the, the professional teams in the National League itself moving closer towards the EFL and the semi-professional teams in the North and South sort of like remaining more where they are? Who knows? So, I mean, the irony of all this is that all 10 National League games actually took place for the first time this season, I think, on on Saturday. And Stockport County uh, were without a manager. There was, as I say, it's been uh, it's been a fairly hectic and busy week in the National League. And just before the whole thing about the National League, should it stop or not? Stockport announced it did part a company with Jim Gannon, not for football reasons, but for culture reasons. And it was um, a bit of a shock from that sense, certainly from the Stockport County point of view uh, and, and the fans' point of view. I know from other clubs who's managed that, Port Vale, Motherwell, they're kind of saying, well, you know, I'm surprised it took this long in terms of like the culture side of it. But it was... a. Uh, the timing seems more of a massive shot than anything, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, fourth in the table. Um, I think they had a they had a two one win on Tuesday evening as well, so it was off the back of a a positive result. So I don't think there are any sort of signs in how things have been going on the field, particularly. Um, but the the statement, it's funny. Stockport fans aren't particularly happy with the statement. I think they'd probably like you know like to get more detail from it. But the statement that came out of the club made it very clear that it wasn't performance issues. It was culture um exactly as you say um it's a difficult one i always think in 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 terms of that statement um there's not necessarily too much that you can say i know fans would like to know blow by blow details of how this has come about but i'm not sure that that particularly does either parties any favors in this instance you know if if there has been a falling out if there is unhappiness with the way jim gallon actually does that role you know is it fair to to air all of that dirty linen in public and make it more difficult to him to get another job in future you know i think you some things do have to stay behind closed doors i think what we have to recognize um representatively, if you like, on our podcast is something that all of us noticed, or, or, or rather it was brought to my attention by one of you guys in the group. But uh, 
the response to that sacking was um, as negative as I can recall seeing when a football manager has been uh, dismissed. And it literally ran into hundreds of replies, of which I don't think I'd be exaggerating if I said around 90% plus were like, he shouldn't have gone. He's a club legend. He's improved the club's position year on year. Um, yeah, you can talk to one or two people in football and get their individual opinions on Jim Gannon. Listen to the uh, Under the Cost podcast the, uh, the other week if, uh, if, if, if you want uh, an opinion there. But um, it doesn't take away from what he was achieving on the pitch. And uh, yes, they went out of two cup competitions last week. Uh, Tom, I know you're in the South there as I am, but this at this level of football and this uh, league that we cover, that's massive news, isn't it? Stockport sacking Jim Gannon. I think it's about as big a news story as you could have in, in this division. Um, I think the only thing that could push it out of the focus of, of the press is the fact that we've stopped National League football, yeah. uh, two, of the, two of the three leagues. Um, maybe that's maybe they're just uh, sort of pausing in mourning for Jim Gannon's role at Stockport. I don't know. Um, but I think one, you're, you're 100% right. The response has been overwhelmingly negative. Um, but I think there's an element of, the word culture covers a broad range um, and there's been a lot of feedback. If you want to talk about culture, Jim Gannon is the culture of this club. You know, he's as a manager and a player being involved with just under a thousand matches for Stockport. You know, he is Mr. Stockport. But culture doesn't just mean that. Culture doesn't just mean the history in, of the club and, and what the club is seen to stand for by the fans. Culture means what the attitude's like in the dressing room. It means what the environment and the atmosphere is around, like the, around the club. It means what they want to portray to the media is Stockport County moving forward under this new ownership. And clearly there was a disconnect between what they felt Jim Gannon was able to provide and where they want the club to be perceived to be going. Um, And I think I understand the fans reaction, but I also think that as much as Jim Gannon has earned their loyalty and their, their respect, I think the board has done enough since they've come in to show that they earned the respect and the trust in their decision-making as well. Also, Tom, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. I mean, Stockport get, what, four or 5,000 at home? You've probably got 2 or 3%. You probably hear and know concrete what goes on behind closed doors. The rest are just paying punters who come and see the football. What Jim Gannon says in his post-match interviews, how he acts on the touchline, you know, and he's, he's got this big thing, hasn't he, about discipline in terms of he always wants his team to be top of the fair play league, and they are, and a lot of things like that. And he's got a great record of coaching younger players and as I say but then if you look at it from some of the league clubs he's managed the fans say well he, he, he was um, he was really aggressive to the younger players he couldn't manage the older players and like you say some managers in the club fit well and Stockport and Jim Gannon fitted perfectly so whether if he moves on to somewhere else it'll work quite as well who knows now going forward especially with the culture thing now labelled at him a little bit. You know, if it was for results, you go, well, fair enough. It's just sometimes it runs its course, but clearly this this hadn't run its course for footballing reasons, had it? I actually think that that culture word is, again, I think that could be, when we look back at it in the future, we could say actually the board have been a bit unkind with that. I think had they come out and said, do you know what? We spent a lot of money in the summer. We're only fourth in the league. We're out of two cup competitions. Jim's done a great job, but I think we need someone else to take us forward on the pitch. I think whilst we might have disagreed with that and and there would be a big argument about that's nonsense, they're doing great in the league. I think it's less sort of pejorative. Um, It's it's less of a statement about Jim Gannon as a man, as opposed to his ability as a football manager, whereas saying culture does make it sound like, you know, yeah, great. You're very good at your job. We just don't like the way you do it. 
Well, That's right. Stockport went into Saturday's game with Boreham Wood in a bit of shock. I know Chris was there and he said it was very low energy, even though there was no fans there. It was, was a still a bit strange, but they drew 1-1 in the end with Boreham Wood. And it was a game that I think on balance, Boreham Wood probably just edged in the end. And uh, we'll hear now from the opposite side. We'll hear from Luke Garrard, who Chris managed to grab a word with after the game. So, Luke, you've caught, you've come back from uh, Edgeley Park with a point. You happy with that? I think we deserve more. I have to say, I think on reflection, they'd probably be a little bit aggrieved in the first half that they haven't posted a sword with an Alex Reed header. But I feel that Cab Tishamanga's got a score with inside the six-yard box. I think Junior Morales has got to run at your goalkeeper to pin him down and pass it either side of him. I think we could pick up the rebounds on some of our shots first half. But I felt we finished strong. We looked strong with a 10, 15 minutes to go. When you've got your Stockport's management team telling you to slow down and try and eke out a point tells you where the, the, the reflection of the game's going. So, yeah, great reaction from Tuesday's evening's game against Torquay. And we need to ensure that we go and get maximum points on Tuesday against Chesterfield. There was a situation that happened here in the week uh, with, with Jim Gallen going and everything. Did, did that affect how you prepared for today's game? No, because you've got your assistant manager still involved in it. So when I look at that, the same principles would be obviously distributed out to the individuals and we need to ensure that we were doing what we were doing. And I felt that we were very productive today. I felt we won that midfield battle. I felt our two strikers didn't allow their back three to get on top. I felt that we was, we was better in key areas today. And for me, I think we probably edged it in terms of getting the three points. Not, not the case. 14 points from 18 games in our last six games. We sit currently 11th. I believe if we win on Tuesday night, we get ourselves nestled inside the playoffs. So, yeah, we've got everything to play for. The best thing about me was, for me, was that we finished strong. That shows fitness, especially against teams that we played Torquay on a tough affair on, on Tuesday evening. And we finished game strong. And that's something that I like. And could we be a little bit more relentless and ruthless in front of goal? That's something I need to ask. But, look, for me, we've come to Edgy Park. We've come to Stockport who I feel were going to have a reaction for their, their ex-gathering, Jim Gannon, and ensured that we left here with a point, which I think is a point gained as opposed to two points lost. Might not have been any match on when you first turned up with the, with the snow on the pitch. Were you, were you concerned for a moment? Now, listen, I thought that the, the um, volunteers done superb. There was all staff members on there trying to insist the game was going on. We wanted to play. We don't want to come back here on a Tuesday evening. It only aids Stockport. The pitch, yeah, it probably didn't aid both teams. We were both, both quite an expansive football inside, so probably didn't aid us, but you had to put your crash helmet on. You had to roll your sleeves up and have a tear up today. And that was Luke Garrard. And, and as he mentioned, they're going well, Boreham Wood. And uh, even though they're in 11th, if they win their game in midweek, they can go up into the playoff places. It's that tight, isn't it? Yeah, and they're having a good steady season, as steady as anyone can have, really, uh, at this uh, current time. I think you've got this with a lot of clubs. It's so congested in the middle of the National League table. You lose two, you have four, four places above the relegation zone. Uh, you, know, you win three on the trot and you're, and you're sitting on the you know sixth, seventh, eighth uh, playoff place. Luke Garrard didn't agree that it was a good point. I think he felt that they probably could have won the game and... Uh, taking advantage of, uh, you know, the, the confusion that must be there at Stockport at the moment. In amongst us saying how well Ganlin was doing, they did, of course, go out of those two cups last week. And uh, that's another two points dropped from a leading position in the league as well. So uh, it's not all going smoothly on the pitch. No, and at the top of the division remain Torquay. And they had a tough fixture at Notts County and it was nil-nil in the end and I think Notts County probably would have more disappointed out of the two Torquay probably would have taken a point if he'd have offered it Gary Johnson at the start of the day wouldn't he? Yeah I think so I think um, if we're going to be realistic about the table I think uh, 
the, the three strongest teams in the division are probably Notts County, Stockport and Tottenham Torquay. So if you can win your home game against that opposition player, opposition team and, and get a point from the away game, you definitely look at that as, as a job well done across the two matches. Sutton, I mean, you didn't mention Sutton in there, Tom, but they're in second. They won't go away. They had a 3-0 win against Eastley. They were helped that Eastley had Cal Miley sent off on 34 minutes. And then from there, they, they took control and, and ran out comfortable winners. Yeah, that was apparently quite a bad tackle on Craig Eastman, I think, for the red card. Uh, I saw a bit of commentary around that online. Um, but, you know, you're right to pull me up for not mentioning Sutton because they have been uh, in fantastic form this season. They're bringing in goals again around the pitch. I think David Adjaboy scored again. Rob Milson got his first for the season. Uh, and Craig Eastman, again, like I've waxed about Craig, Craig Eastman for three, four years now. I think he's one of the most complete midfielders in the division. Um, for someone who sits so deep as well, you know, he is essentially uh, a breaking up midfielder. I think that's his third or fourth goal of the season. Um, and we're only about a third of the way through the campaign. Yeah, Hartlepool missed a chance as well to progress, although they stay in third position. A surprising re- result, they lost 1-0 at Weymouth. And we said about Weymouth, they've been on a, a decent little mini run, hadn't they? they I think they've, uh, they've, they've, not, they've lost two of the last five, but those have been draws. They just needed that win and they got that um, Josh McQuaid scoring against Hartlepool and didn't really see that result coming. Probably not that one, No. Uh, but as you say, Weymouth are finding their feet now at this level. And, uh, um, you know, they're, they're just starting to stack a few points together back to back. A win here, a draw there. I'll get a closer look at them uh, in the uh, week when they take on uh, Aldershot. And uh, I'm, uh, I know that Chris, who's not joining us today, is was very impressed with Weymouth when he saw them play. So, I haven't really seen uh, them at all this season, other than in the highlights, and so not much more I can uh, I can add to that. Yeah, the teams in fifth, sixth, and seventh are Altingham, Halifax, and Solihull Moors. All had away wins, and uh, I was going to say all of them came from behind. Certainly, Halifax and Altingham did. Solihull Moors had a comfortable two 0 win at Dover, but in terms of of Altingham, I, I was saying to Tom before we came on air, they're just not going to go away, are they? I don't think. No, I mean, they, we've said how many, so many times about how they've improved to get to where they are now from what looked like a, a nasty position, second bottom, a lot of players out injured, they've really done well. But uh, what we do have to take into perspective here with Altrincham particularly is that they've played 19 games, more than anybody else in the league. Nobody else has uh, played the same amount. Um, and they sit two places and two points above Solihull Moors, but Solihull Moors have five games in hand. So, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I'm beginning to think we might need to do a little PPG exercise at some point just to shuffle the National League table and make it look like it really should do. <laughs> but, I mean, the big thing about it is, it's like me and Tom said, I expected Barnett to maybe bully them, and, and, and certainly they didn't, did they? I mean, he's got a very late winner through Josh Hancock, and that says a lot, doesn't it, Tom? Yeah, it does. And uh, it's, you typically look at the teams that have been promoted, they've got slightly smaller squads than most. Um, they maybe they add a sprinkling of quality, don't they? But it's difficult to replicate the depth that some of the more established teams that they'll have. So then naturally you'd be expecting them to fall away at the end of matches and at the end of campaigns. Um, we don't know how the second of those points will be answered, whether they will fall away at the end of the campaign, but we definitely know that they aren't falling away at the end of the matches and they aren't letting teams, um, as you say, bully them into submission across 90 minutes. And, Dickie and as for Tim sorry. Flowers... sorry. And as for Tim Flowers, he'll be absolutely gutted at that result because, as we saw when Barnett played Borehamwood uh, less than a couple of weeks ago, that, you know he he got the true 
vision of what it was he'd inherited and he was very, very worried, Tim Flowers. He has set about reorganising things. He's shoring up, looking to shore up the defence with a bit of nous, a bit of experience, a bit of physicality. And they took Altrincham, who are in the playoff places, to the 90th minute yesterday. So there'll be progress there, I'm sure, in terms of their performance, Barnett. But uh, sadly for Tim Flowers, uh, another opportunity to put points on the board missed. Yeah, and Dickie Solihull and Halifax, good away wins for them and uh, solid sort of campaigns for them so far as well. Maybe a bit higher than, than we expected, certainly for Halifax. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I certainly, I think in my predictions, um, I haven't had a look back at them for a while, but I, I don't think I had um, Halifax being in the playoff places again. But no, they're, <clears throat> they're um, maintaining, you know, the kind of form they had um, under last season and bounced back from a, a midweek getting um, knocked out of the FA Trophy by Southport as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, there's a couple of games that we'll, a couple more games that we'll touch on. James Rowe, the juggernaut, continues there. They beat Wrexham by two goals to one. Both goals from a quasi Asante, and uh, and another a significant result. Certainly down at the bottom. I know after 70 minutes yesterday, Rob, you said, "Oh, Daryl McMahon could be under a bit of pressure here." They were two 0 down at home to Kings Lynn, but what a remarkable comeback for them! Unbelievable. I think there were. 70 minutes gone, I texted you in the WhatsApp group and I said, that scoreline, Dagenham nil, Kingsley in two, is the sort of scoreline that will give Tim Howard an itchy trigger finger. From that point on, I think uh, Callum Reynolds scored and, uh, and and started the recovery and they ended up turning that round. Uh, so quite to the contrary, in the end, could that be such a morale-boosting late turnaround for Dagenham that it kickstarts their season? So Woken and Maidenhead drew nil-nil, uh, but the, the game that certainly wouldn't have been a nil-nil and, and probably you'll never see a nil-nil at is Wheelstone, is it, Rob? And that, that was a case with a holder shot. Oh, absolutely. It was quite contrasting, those two games. It's interesting that you've grouped them together because myself and Gav Dennison were taking turns to give updates to uh, BBC uh, uh, Radio Surrey Sport listeners yesterday on the uh, relative games, the Woken and the Aldershot game. And I literally think in the first half, every single time they came to me, there'd been another goal in the game. The lead changed hands three times. It was an absolute cracker. And then they go to Gav in the nil-nil and he said, it's absolutely dire. He said, in fact, Gav Dennison, it was quite a good line. He quoted um, that uh, there was an official way that sometimes the BBC... uh, commentators would call it an intriguing game or something like that. He said, no, I'm going to use the real words. This is dire, he said. Um, coming back to uh, the game at Wealdstone, well, the games involving Wealdstone, I think even prior to yesterday, had averaged four goals a game. And we got an above average one yesterday, seven goals in the match. Open as you like, all the shot going 1-0 up, going 2-1 down and then 3-2 up again before the break. Um, and uh, then securing a fourth 15 minutes from time, only to concede a penalty, and it goes back to 4-3-3. Dean Brennan, bless his heart, tearing his hair out, I think. Um, they're certainly entertaining side to watch, Wilson, aren't they? But looking at the stats on that game, Aldershot Town, 16 shots on target, 21 in total. Yes, they've got a number of attacking options, and they're starting to find the net. They've got a few issues in defence, but I absolutely loved every minute of that game yesterday. Um, and it's probably the most entertaining game I've seen watching a live stream that didn't buffer. Yay! The funny side wheels done, aren't they, Tom? I mean, as we say, they score lots of goals, but conceding them will be the concern as well. Yeah, of course it will. Um, 
it's it's the old thing, isn't it? Like uh, attacks win your games, defense win your championships, but also the reverse is you know it works at the bottom of the table as well. Uh, attacks will win your matches, but defenses will keep you up up above relegation. Um, I think it's it's particularly interesting because their strong defense was one of the biggest hallmarks of their promotion campaign last season which does demonstrate just sort of what the step up is to National League, I think. On a side note, I have actually just worked out that points per game table that Rob was talking about. That it puts Torquay first, Sutton United second, Solihull up to third, then Stockport, Hartlepool, Notts County, Maidenhead, Borehamwood, Bromley, Halifax, Wrexham. The big droppers are Altrincham, who go down to 13th, and Oldershot, who go down to 14th. Well, that's just normal. That happens in a game. Yesterday, you know... <laughs> Aldershot, I think, started the day in 14th position. They went 1-0 up. They moved up to 7th. And then uh, 20 minutes later, they were 15th. Now, you've got to love this league and how close it is. Um, it's, just, it's, it's just bonkers, isn't it? Bonkers. That's the word of the day. That's how bonkers. Just quickly before we, uh, we finish, of course, Charlie, they bowed out against Wolverhampton Wanderers. And Wolves had a really strong side out. And yet, Charlie came out with all the plaudits. I saw lots on Twitter from Wolves fans bemoaning the performance and saying they should have gone out, which shows how well Charlie did. Yeah, I, I mean, it's difficult to sort of say any more than Charlie. We've not already said they've absolutely done the National League and the National League North proud um, in the way that they've performed in this FA Cup run so far. You know, they've they, we we spoke we spoke to Jamie Vermiglio what seems like, you know, weeks ago now, and, and we touched on the fact that, you know, in the one round they got a bye, but wow, didn't they take advantage of that situation and, and, and really sort of like justify their, their place further on in the competition? Um, you know, the wins against Wigan, the victory at Peterborough especially, I think who were, who were going uh, very strongly at, at, at the top of League One and winning 2-1 away there after being behind. Um, they've, they've just done tremendously. And I, I, I do think a lot of those Chorley players will have done a lot to put themselves in the shop window um, with other clubs as well, you know, it's it's the kind of FA Cup run that you know. I think I read it that the run in total had generated something like close to three hundred and fifty thousand pounds for Chorley, which in the current um, environment is you know so so valuable, um, and it, and it could provide um, you know a, a career boost for some of those those lads at Chorley. I think for the most part they are players who've been. Um, at a higher, well, didn't make it a higher level and have dropped down into non-league, but I think there's a good chance we'll see a few of them rebounding back into careers with um, with full-time clubs before too long. Brill, one minute to I, go. Okay. Okay, just quickly. I just want to say a massive thank you to Chorley for keeping the FA Cup magic alive this year. They've been an absolute credit to non-league. Uh, Adam Virgo and uh, Adam Summerton in their summing up at the end of the game agreed Chorley were the better team. Think about that, the better team. Uh, the Wolves strike force was worth £56 million alone. So well done, Jamie Vermiglio. Um, and uh, well done, Adele. <laughs> yeah. On that note, uh, it's time to say thanks to everyone for listening. Tom, Dickie, Rob, thanks for joining us. And to Scott Davis as well. Look after yourselves. Don't forget to subscribe to us on all podcasting platforms. And we'll see you all very soon. <laughs>